0: We're here tonight and we are going to start our fall series for the next 10 weeks. We're going to be in the book of Philippians. It's a short letter found in uh, the New Testament that was written by Paul. Um, One of the things that we desire to be and we've desired to be since we first started to plan to move here to start restoration and since we've been meeting for worship services since last March um, is to be a church that values the word of God and the whole counsel of the word of God. And so. One of the ways that we stress our love and our dependence on the word is to take books, whole books of the Bible, and teach through them chapter by chapter and verse by verse. This isn't meant to be necessarily a seminary-style lecture of the letter or the book that we're going through, but it's meant to help us understand from beginning to end the thoughts that these men who were inspired by the Spirit had about the particular moment in history that they were writing. If you hang around us long enough, you begin to pick up on the idea, whether we state it or not, that context is king. Context, how we usually think of that, is the words that come just before or just after a set of verses that we're going to look at. And that is true. That is primarily what we mean by context. But the other context is this, that there was a socio historical time that these letters were written so there is a, a wider historical context that all these letters fit in nothing that the biblical writers thought and then put to paper that have been preserved for us in the Bible occurred in a vacuum it all happened at specific moments in history and so there are customs and there are social norms and there are things that we need to understand about what caused a book to be written so that we can better understand what it meant for the believers and for the people of God then and from there understand what it means for us now. And so the goal of working through a book like Philippians from Philippians 1 1 to the end of chapter 4 is for us to get a full picture of Paul's writing of the letter and what he was hoping to accomplish. And so. Tonight, we're going to look just briefly at the background of the letter, when Paul wrote it, why Paul wrote it, what Paul hoped to accomplish in writing it, and then we're going to spend a brief few moments at the end in Acts looking at the formation of the church at Philippi. It's one of the only kind of longer stories of a church plant that Paul started that we have recorded in Scripture, and so we're going to end there tonight. And our goal, really, as a church... As we walk through this letter with Paul, as we consider his words to the Philippians then and to us now, we want to join with Paul in being able to say that we are forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, that we would press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. If we didn't have your word, there would be a lot of confusion about what it is to be a follower of Christ, what it is to understand our sinfulness and our need for redemption and what you've done to provide that redemption in Christ. And so, Father, we treasure your word. We value your word because it helps us to know and to love you and others better. And so, Father, tonight as we begin to look at the letter to the church at Philippi, as we begin to unpack the historical reasoning for this letter, the social time that this letter was written. Father, would it serve as an encouragement to us that you inspired these words because they were not only true in the first century, but they're true for us even now. And the only way that can be the case is if the eternal, true God inspired the words in the first place. So, Father, would you help us even as we leave tonight, to have a deeper appreciation and desire for your word in our life. In Christ's name, amen. Paul wrote Philippians. There's no real argument in that among uh, biblical scholars. There is no real sense of, well, maybe Paul did, maybe Paul didn't. Philippians is genuinely attributed to Paul. Paul. And Paul more than likely wrote this letter to the church at Philippi in or around 62 AD while he was imprisoned in Rome. Paul had been, if you read the entirety of the book of Acts, Paul is arrested. He's kept in jail for a while, other places. He then requests, um, as a Roman citizen, he requests the hearing with um, the emperor. And so he is taken to Rome and is in jail there and it's in and around 62 ad that he wrote the the letter to the church at philippi during this same time paul also wrote colossians ephesians and philemon and so those letters Coupled with Philippians, sometimes if you're reading the study notes in a Bible or you're reading uh, because you're like me and you're a theology nerd or you, you wander into the wrong part of a book that you didn't intend to read that much of, you may see these grouped together and referred to as the prison epistles or the prison letters because Paul wrote them while on house arrest in Rome. We do know that by 62 A.D. Paul was nearing the end of his life and it would be just a few years later that he would be beheaded at the hands of the Roman government. But what is unique about Paul's life, and especially if you take into account what he conveys through the prison epistles, it's this. Paul was walking the walk of the talk he talked in those letters. There was a certain integrity to Paul's life that is always intimidating to folks like us. Because we don't live with the threat like Paul did of pending persecution, of going to jail for our beliefs. And so we like to think, yes, if questioned, I would go to jail for my beliefs. But we don't know exactly how we would answer that question because we'll probably never have to answer it. But there's a certain integrity to Paul's life that is one of the reasons we hold him in such regard. Even though we know Paul was one who condoned the stoning of Stephen in the early part of Acts, even knowing his sinful past. The integrity with which he lived his life after meeting Christ is so challenging to each of us, and it would have been challenging to the recipients of the letter to the church at Philippi because they were not getting someone espousing beliefs that they didn't really believe themselves, and they weren't getting Wisdom that hadn't been won through the hard struggles of life. A guy doesn't write you a letter from prison about his beliefs unless he really believes them. And he's committed to not only believing them, but living them. Living them to the extent that it would cost him his life. Paul remained faithfully obedient to Christ and had not and would not cave to pressure either inside or outside of The church, the integrity of Paul's life that we just talked about, demanded both a faithful response from the Philippians and from us. And lastly, as we begin to work through this letter, I want us to think about how close Paul was to his own death. Paul did not write this in the spring of his life with many years of living ahead of him. He didn't write it in the middle of his life where he could look back and balance the scales and begin to think of things he wanted to do differently. Paul wrote this letter on the doorstep of death. And I want you to think about, as we work through this over the next 10 weeks, and maybe as you read over it a couple times, think about all the comfort that Paul would have received himself as he wrote and thought about the beauty and the sufficiency and the love of God towards himself and the Philippians because of the finished work of Christ. And so in 62, or around that time, Paul, sitting under house arrest in the Roman government in the capital city, writes this letter to the church at Philippi. Paul writes... Because the Philippians have sent Paul a gift. They've heard through his travels and through uh, talking to people from other cities where Paul is doing and has done missionary work. They've found out that Paul is in Rome under house arrest. And so these Philippian believers have put together, cobbled together an offering of monetary gift of some amount, and maybe there are clothes, maybe there's parchment. We don't know all that was delivered, but we do know that they sent by the hand of Epaphroditus a gift to Paul, and that's what prompted this letter being sent back to them. In Philippians 4.18, Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. But the entirety of Philippians is not one verse where he says, hey, I'm Paul and I'm in prison. Thanks for your gift. Talk to you next time. As Epaphroditus brought the gift and gave the gift to Paul and began to unpack for him what had happened to him on the way, we know, and we're going to look at this later, that Epaphroditus got sick, maybe even to the point of death. So Epaphroditus fills him in on not only his struggles in getting from Philippi to Paul in Rome, but he also begins to recount to Paul the current spiritual climate of the church at Philippi. And after hearing these reports, he writes back, as Moises Silva says in his commentary on the background of this letter, the Philippians were experiencing severe spiritual problems. They had lost confidence in their ability to maintain their Christian confession. So Paul writes to remind the Philippians of the ongoing work of sanctification in their lives, even as the immediate cost to them, both spiritual, and physical and emotional and otherwise, seem to outweigh both the immediate and the long-term benefits of living their life committed to Christ. This is one thing that's hard for us to do or even maybe think in terms of today because we live in such an a immediate gratification culture. I mean, we feel like now we, most of us use some form of Amazon Prime, and so we feel like if an, if an item's not on Prime, we're like, how dare they make me wait for business days? What kind of third world country are we living in? Give me my package tomorrow. Now, I mean, Amazon's now willing to come into your house if you leave a key, which is a little weird, and I don't recommend that. They'll come into your house. I think they offer a cleaning service. I could be wrong. We live in a moment and in a time where you can buy anything with the click of a button. And most of the things you buy will be on your doorstep within 36 to 48 hours, or they immediately download, or they immediately come to your inbox. Just as it was for the Philippians then, so it is for us now, and maybe more so with this immediacy of gratification that we live with that it's so easy to begin to think that maybe living for Christ isn't really worth it because all of our true reward is not in this life. It's in the life to come. And so just like the Philippians, then we can get into the same point that Silva highlights where we begin to lose confidence in our ability to maintain our Christian confession. And it's not necessarily because we're undergoing persecution. It's mainly because we just get really impatient. And we begin to go, it doesn't really matter if I follow Christ in this area of my life. Because there's an immediate reward there that I want. That I'm willing to violate my Christian confession for. And so we find ourselves in much the same position. Now, often, if you've done any studies of the letter of to the Philippians, or you spent any time reading through it, most of the studies that you see about the Book of Philippians all center around this theme of joy. Philippians is often considered like Paul's happiest letter. Like this was when the Philippians caught Paul on a really good day because, In Galatians, he's railing people for not adhering to the true gospel, and he's offering really profound and blunt advice on what those who want uh, to adopt castration can do to themselves, or circumcision can do to themselves, which is castrate themselves. You get the Corinthians where he, in two letters, he's unpacking in the first letter the mess of their living life together as the church, and then in the second letter to the Corinthians, you see Paul almost heartbroken, over their reactions to his teachings, both in person and through letters. And so Philippians comes almost like a a breath of fresh air in all that Paul writes. But I want to contend with you tonight, and I hope you'll see it over the next nine weeks, that while joy is a dominant theme in the letter to the church at Philippi, joy is not really what Paul is after. Really what Paul does is he sets joy up, and he talks about rejoicing and joyfulness and being glad, but he's using it more as a catalyst to call the Philippians to keep growing in Christlikeness. The surface reading of Philippians would lead you to think that Paul's aim was for them to be joyful. But if you'll go back and reread it, you'll understand that Paul's really trying to use joy in Christ as the catalyst for their ongoing growth in Christ-likeness. And that makes sense if you think about it. Joy for joy's sake is a bad idea. Joy for joy's sake is a terrible idea. The only real way we can get joy in our life as a believer is to experience more of Christ. Joy is not an external reality that we try to create. Joy is an internal relationship with Christ. And so if you want to have joy, the joy that Paul talks about all through the letter, you have to have an ongoing, deepening, growing relationship with Jesus. Or else you've got joy with no purpose attached to it. And that joy becomes self-defeating. True joy always finds at its center the finished work of Christ. And that is what Paul is calling them to. And I think you see this developed. The ESV has this noted in the introduction to this letter in the study Bible. But I believe through at least the following five themes, this is how you see Paul use joy as a catalyst to Christlikeness. First, you're going to see this theme play out, that Christ is our supreme example of what loving service to God looks like. Philippians 2, 5-11 through 11 is maybe some of the most beautiful scripture in the New Testament describing the attitude and the person and the work of Christ and the attitude it calls us to. It calls, it calls us in those verses to look to Christ and then seek to be those who pattern our lives after him, both in service to God and in service to others because Paul hits on both in that section of Philippians 2. He highlights Christ's service to the Father, and he highlights also Christ's service to us. The other theme you see developed is this. A Christian must never stagnate but continue growing in their faith. Because we are Inherently sinful and because we battle our flesh and our sinfulness daily in this life, we never hit a point where we arrive. And the most dangerous place for a Christian to reside long term is in the mindset that they don't need to keep growing. Everything begins to die in our life as it regards our faith when we've convinced ourselves that we no longer need to grow. And this is easy to do. And I'll tell you, I'll be honest, because there are days I get to the end of the day and I'm so impressed with myself that I have a hard time really thinking about what I need to ask for forgiveness for. And that's a dangerous place to live as a follower of Christ. Because it sets us up to go, why keep pressing myself to be in the scriptures Why keep pressing myself to be disciplined in prayer? Why keep pressing myself to share my faith with others? I've arrived. I don't need to work on my walk with Christ anymore. And Paul's going to use joy as a catalyst to call us to never let ourselves stagnate or stall out in our faith. The third theme I think we're going to see developed over the course of this letter is that as Christians we will suffer, but these times can be met with joy through our growing faith. The time to develop the joy you need to face the suffering you're going to go through is not when the suffering starts. And that's what Paul's going to, he, he knows it's coming. This is a guy sitting in prison. He knows it's coming. He knows they're going to face moments of suffering and persecution and hardship. And he is going to say, you want to walk through that suffering well? Well? Start to grow your joy by growing in Christlikeness now. That's your only hope of facing the suffering that's coming with joy, with a heart and a spirit that points past the suffering to the Savior. That only comes if you're willing to do the hard work now when it's not in your life, when the suffering isn't pressing in on you. Will you push yourself? Will you ask the spirit to grow in you a deepening Christ-likeness that leads to a deepening joy. Fourth theme I think we're going to see is that a Christian's growth in their joy and in their faith is directly tied to their prayer life. We will read Philippians. We will go buy the books that I recommended last week. We'll go buy a thousand books on the book of Philippians before we will work ourselves into a daily posture of prayer over growing in our faith and in our joy we will read really good books. We will even read this book and miss the point of letting it drive us to prayer, asking God to do what only he can do in our life, which is grow our faith and our joy. And Paul's going to work at the Philippians from a few different places in this letter to say, your joy and your faith are directly tied to how you pray. I mean, they didn't have... A Bible this size to carry around They had scrolls. I mean, they had maybe large chunks of it memorized, but they didn't have the privilege of owning the scriptures that they could take with them. So they would have to hear it. And then they knew that the only hope that they had was to take what they could remember and pray that to the father, that the father would work that truth down into them. And the same is true for us. As we work through this book, as we spend time in this book together over the next nine weeks, we can do nine weeks of really good preaching. We can do nine weeks of really good small group discussion. But if it is nine weeks that is devoid of personal prayer, asking God to work in you the way that Paul asked the Philippians to ask God to work in their life, then it is a wasted nine weeks for us. It is only as we pray, along with reading the Bible, along with being together on Sundays, along with being in community. But the one thing that we all neglect often is our prayer life. And Paul's going to press us to say, if you want your joy and your faith to grow, you better be praying. And the fifth thing that we're going to see throughout this letter is the fifth theme that helps joy serve as the catalyst to our sanctification is this the gospel is not an individual exercise but a call to communal fellowship and unity. Communal fellowship and unity are only possible if individuals are working on their own and in smaller bits of the community called the church to grow in Christ-likeness. Community, unity, fellowship, Will not happen. No matter how much you try to program it. No matter how much you try to create an environment for it. Community. Fellowship. And unity around the gospel. Cannot happen where people are not working daily. To move themselves. Out of the center of their own life. Unity. Community. Fellowship. Around the gospel. Will not happen. When everyone is only focused on me not me as in you all are focused on me that's also bad different subject different time the gospel is a matter of personal response to the public invitation of jesus to trust him for the forgiveness of your sins but it does not end there it is an adoption in it is a joining into god's Family through all of those who have responded to the call of Jesus, trusted in him in faith, and been baptized into the community of believers. And then we get the joy of living this thing out together in unity and in fellowship. But that only happens, only happens where there are individuals who are committed to seeing and asking God to grow Christ-likeness in themselves this called a unity and sanctification and joy was birthed out of Paul's closeness to those founding members of the church at Philippi by the time Paul wrote this letter the church at Philippi was roughly 10 years old it was an established church and so let's take a brief glimpse at how this all got started in Philippi If you have your Bibles, you can open them, uh, Acts 15 and 16. We're going to kind of mow through this relatively quickly. But this is where Luke, who traveled with Paul on most of his missionary journeys, this is where Luke recounts the formation of or the founding of the church at Philippi. Paul, in Acts 15, is at the Jerusalem Council, which is where everyone, all the first century church leaders, Paul and Barnabas and others came together because they had to answer the pressing question of for the Gentile believers, for those who are non-Jews, who are coming to faith in Christ, who we believe to be the Messiah and the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. What do we require of them? What are the things that they, how, in, in essence, they're asking How Jewish, if at all, do these people have to be to be welcomed in to fellowship? And so they gather and they discuss what this will take. And at the end, near the end of Acts 15, they write a letter. And they write a letter and they give it to Paul and Barnabas and others to carry to the Gentile Christians to say, this is what we, as the founding members, as the apostles of Jesus, this is what we think, this is what we are going to say are the requirements for you to be welcomed into fellowship. This is what it says in Acts fifteen twenty-eight: For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, which is good to be in agreement with the Holy Spirit, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. Imagine if that was all the discipleship books that were written today was just, hey, just don't do these few things. If you don't do these, hey, you'll be good, farewell. We got to go. Other things going on. So Paul leaves Paul leaves the Jerusalem council with this letter in his hand and Paul and Barnabas and John, Mark and Silas leave and they go to Antioch. They go back to Antioch where they had done ministry before and they spend some time there with this letter encouraging the church that's already established to continue in their work. And at some point there as they're getting ready to leave, Paul and Barnabas have a discussion about where to go next and Barnabas argues with Paul that John Mark should be brought along. And Paul, because of John Mark's past desertion of Paul in the middle of a missionary journey, Paul says, I've not, ta- not taken him. And Barnabas says, well, he kind of needs to go. And so Luke doesn't, t- that was my paraphrase, but Luke then says, Paul and Barnabas split. Barnabas takes John Mark and he goes to Cyprus Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And Paul and Silas go through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. They go to Lystra, and Paul and Silas join up with Timothy, and they travel through that region as well. These men are working to strengthen the already existing churches as they pass along the news of the Jewish council's ruling concerning the requirements for Gentile believers they go back and they're going back to where they've already done work to establish churches and they're saying hey if anyone comes and says they need to do anything more than this don't believe them this is what the elders have said is the requirements for the non-jews to be welcomed in to the fellowship of the church of jesus and so they go to strengthen they go to encourage they go to build up those churches so that they would understand how to rightly discern false teaching from right teaching so they make their way through Lystra. And the men seek to do new areas, seek new areas where they can do gospel work. And in 16, 6 through 8, they go through this thing. I always refer to this section of Scripture. It's like they were bowling with bumpers. Like they're trying to take the gospel into Asia. And every time they try to go in, Luke tells us that the spirit Stop them from going says actually says, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. They were committed to taking the gospel to where it had not been. And every time they tried to go into Asia, the spirit of the Lord stopped them. But they just kept going. They didn't let it bother them. They kept going, trying to find where they would be needed and most effective in sharing the gospel. And this is a challenge for us today, just to step out of Acts briefly and mention this. The first time we meet resistance, we throw our hands up and say, I'm done. I don't even know. It's not even worth it anymore. I tried once, and this is it. Nobody wants to listen. Nobody wants to show up. Nobody wants to take this serious. Paul and Silas keep going. Paul and Silas and Luke. They just, okay, I can't go here. Let me try here. Not there. Okay, I'm going to go here. Not there. there. There's this idea. There's this sense with what Luke records in Acts 16. They were going to keep going until something happened. They knew that the message that they had, that the truth of the gospel was needed by those who had not heard it, and they weren't going to let the first time they were told no stop them from trying again and again and again and again. Until finally, we read this in Acts 16:9 as they're in trials. This says this in 16:9, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Just a fair warning. If somebody shows up in your dream tonight and says, can you share the gospel with me when you see me tomorrow? It's probably good to assume that the Lord wants you to share the gospel with those people tomorrow. I like how Luke just says, yeah, and we concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Well, yeah. Yeah. He sent a guy in your dreams to say, hey, can you come to us? Because we want to hear about how we can be saved through Jesus. Like, I just wish I could get one conversation with some person in Wilmington who would say, hey, you're a minister. Can you just tell me how to be saved? I'd really love that. Like, just one time. Not even going to have to be a dream, just real life. So they travel on to Philippi. Paul, Silas, and Luke end up outside of the city gate of Philippi on the Sabbath. They go and they find a group of women together for a time of prayer and worship to God. Now there were women outside the city, and if you've ever read this and been like, well, that seems odd. Why did they go outside the city? Because Paul's mode of operation throughout Acts was to go into a city to find the synagogue to begin by reasoning with the Jews for the truth of who Christ said he was. And then once he had had his fill and once he had done all he could to persuade the Jews, then he would go out into the city to find others who had no concept of the Jewish God that he had reasoned with them about, and he would share the gospel with them. But in Philippi, he goes straight outside the city because Philippi did not have a large Jewish population. And in order for a synagogue to run in a city, you have to have three Jewish men who are able and qualified to run the synagogue. So we know that that was a small Jewish population with not even enough men to open and run a synagogue. And so Paul and Silas and Luke end up outside the city and they find a group of women. I'm sure that they were pointed in that direction when they ask about where the Jews worshiped. And they find this lady named Lydia. She's sitting there with other women and getting themselves ready for prayer and worship. And I'm sure Paul, Silas, Luke are like, maybe, maybe this is like an off Sunday. Like, are we near the 4th of July? Like, where is everybody? But it's just a handful of women. And the most amazing thing happens. Paul opens his mouth. And shares the gospel. The size of the crowd. Did not determine. What Paul said. Or did not say. The fact that there were no men. Did not deter Paul. From sharing the gospel. And then this is what happened. Luke tells us in Acts 16. After Paul boldly opened his mouth. To speak the truth of the gospel. The Lord opened her. Being Lydia's heart. To respond to Paul's message. Paul boldly and faithfully shared the gospel. And then the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. This is the beginning. This is the first member of the Philippian church. A God-fearing Greek woman who had gathered outside of the city with some other women because there weren't even enough Jewish men present to get a synagogue going. They are outside the city sitting by the river getting ready for a time of prayer And worship. And Paul comes and shares the gospel, and God opens Lydia's heart. And there is where the church at Philippi starts. Lydia then goes on, her and her whole household are baptized, and she offers her home as a base of operations for Paul and his team while they are in Philippi. We know that Lydia, if you've read this story before and you're familiar with it, she was one who worked in purple goods she was a woman of wealth she was a woman of substantial financial means to have a home big enough to offer three men places to stay so that they could operate their missionary work was to be a woman of considerable means in that time so Paul and Silas and Luke set up their operation Later on, they're making their way back to the place of prayer by the river. And they're followed and harassed by a demon-possessed slave girl. She follows them through the city. And this is what she yells. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Doesn't sound so bad, right? You're like, hey, yeah, that's kind of why we're here. Come on, keep going. Keep going. Come on. A little louder. I don't think they heard you. Day after day, everywhere they go, she is behind them. And she is yelling, not softly, yelling this over and over and over again. Luke, I like that Luke just doesn't hide Paul's character in all this. Luke in Acts 16, 18 says this. And she kept doing for many days, screaming this out. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Paul's like, all right, I've had enough. Like, I get this. Like, I have a three-year-old who sometimes just whines and talks to me in a whiny voice, and it is grating. And I'm like, I want to turn to her sometimes and just pull a Paul and say, all right, demon, out of her now. In that hour, I want her to sit down and just be calm and peaceful and play with her toys and let me do other (laughs) things. Paul, in a moment where he has let it go for a few days, He's greatly annoyed. The first person that Paul shared the gospel with in Philippi, he was not annoyed with. He went out with the express purpose of meeting those who were worshiping the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to share with them the gospel. And he opens his mouth, and God gives Lydia a heart to believe. The second time he has any interaction recorded in Scripture surrounding the gospel, he confronts someone out of sheer annoyance. And yet, we know that she becomes a member of the church at Philippi. She's healed, and she joins them. Even in Paul's annoyance, God was drawing people to himself to make up the church at Philippi. And sometimes, even in our great moments of annoyance, either with ourselves or with others, God can still, in those moments, do works in and through us that defy our imagination, that defy our understanding of how we think that God should work. Now, I'm not giving you a license to go to work tomorrow, and the first time someone annoys you, turn and blast them in the name of Jesus. This is not the norm for how you go about this. But I've always found it interesting that Luke doesn't hide the fact that Paul was annoyed. And you get the sense that Paul really didn't do it necessarily so that she would become a believer. He just wanted her to stop. And yet, she's freed from her possession. She's freed from her oppression. She hears the truth of the gospel at some point through there. The second member of the Philippian church is in. But... Their problems were just beginning because the slave girl's owners who enjoyed the money she made for them realized in an instant that the means of their income had disappeared. This girl who they kept oppressed, who they kept suppressed, who they kept locked down as a means of income for themselves is all of a sudden no longer able to practice divination. She's no longer of use to them financially. So the scripture doesn't say that they lash out at her. They go, to, they go after the men who caused them to lose her in the first place. And so they get Paul and Silas and Luke, and they drag them into the marketplace before the rulers, and they accuse them of disturbing the city. They said that they advocated for customs that were not lawful for Roman citizens to accept or Practice A mob develops as others begin to attack them. And so the magistrates tear the robes off of Paul and Silas, more than likely Luke. They have them all beaten with rods and thrown into prison for they were to be kept safely until they could be heard safely by the rulers without a mob present. So that night around midnight, Paul and Silas, more than likely Luke's there with them, They're caught up in the middle of a worship service at midnight in prison after getting beaten with rods. Like, I just, like, if you just read this, like, brief excerpt of Paul's life, he he strolls out by the river. Lydia, let me pronounce to you the gospel. And she believes. In sheer annoyance, turns and cast the demon out of a girl, and then he gets into a position where he gets his robe taken off, he gets himself beaten senseless with rods, gets thrown in jail, and by midnight that same night, he's just in the middle of a full-blown worship service with Silas. Like, who are these guys? I, don't, I can't begin to like, comprehend what this is like. But they knew from Acts 15 to Acts 16, through the end of Acts, through the end of Paul's life, what Paul knew in each of those moments was that the gospel was true and that Jesus was better than anything that was happening to him. And so Paul and Silas chained together in the very depths of the prison, began to pray and began to worship. And Luke tells us the prisoners were listening to them. Well, yeah, did they have a choice? didn't have soundproof cells then. You're in an open cave, more than likely, thrust all the way into the back. Everywhere around you is open, and these guys are just going. At, if I'm another prisoner, I'm screaming shut. I'm looking at them going, come out, demon. Like, shut. I'm trying to go to sleep. On and on they go, until finally there was a great earthquake, so the foundation of the prisons were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Here was the moment where every prisoner looks down and goes, "What just happened?" Like a minute ago, they're singing and praying, and we just kind of wanted them to be quiet so that we could get some sleep. And there's an earthquake, but nothing has caved in. And all of a sudden, I've got no bonds holding me in place. There was a chance for everyone to run, but you've got to imagine in that moment if you're another prisoner, that's got to be. Horribly disorienting. In the middle of the night for an earthquake to hit. And then all of a sudden to realize that you're not, you're not really probably going to move that fast. You're probably a little dazed and you're sitting there. And So the jailer who's in charge of watching over Paul and Silas and the rest of the inmates wakes up. And when he saw that the doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Because he believed all the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the third founding member of the Philippian church. Is this not just a little bit crazy, this story of how this whole thing starts? I mean, you can read the book of Philippians, you can read this letter that Paul wrote, and you can convince yourself that it started as a nice middle-class establishment with some well-to-do people who had the means to make a church work in their city. But then you go read Acts 15 and 16, and you realize that this story completely shatters our modern notions of church planning and church growth. And the Philippians would have been reminded of their uncommon start every time they gathered for worship. Because as they filed in, and as the service progressed, they would have shared the Lord's Supper with Lydia and her wealthy friends. They would have prayed beside the recently healed and still recovering friends of the slave girl who had themselves recently been freed from possession of and oppression, and they would have fellowshiped with other guards and perhaps recently released prisoners who had heard of the saving work of Jesus from the jailer. This is as broad and diverse a starting group as you can come up with for a launch team for a church. The wealthy, the demon-possessed, and a jailer. I mean, you'll draw a crowd just out of sheer interest. But that is not how we typically think of a church starting. But here's what we know. It started then, and 10 years later, it was still going. 10 years later, there were still people going every week to hear and be encouraged in the gospel and to share life together. People across the spectrum of socioeconomic status, people of different... Genders, people of different nationalities, people of different ethnicities, all gathered around the truth that it was Christ who had saved them. They did not gather to remember Paul. They did not gather to celebrate Paul and Silas coming to their city. They gathered every week to celebrate Christ who had redeemed them. And for 10 years, across this broad range of life experiences and life stories and life settings, they had faithfully gathered to proclaim the goodness and the worth of Jesus. This church's founding members knew the joy of Christ after being delivered by grace from the false hope. Of riches, They knew the joy of Christ after being delivered from soul-killing oppression. And they knew the joy of Christ after being freed to serve the true king and his kingdom. And they knew the unlikely story of their unity caused the people of Philippi to look and wonder about the power of this gospel that could give them, even them, love, concern, and care for one another. It's easy to see when we take into account the backstory of how the church at Philippi started, why Paul had such concern for these dear brothers and sisters to continue growing in their faith so that in Paul's words in Philippians, they would be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom they shined as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. And so tonight, Looking ahead to the next nine weeks, we join with the Philippians. We join in hearing from Paul a summons to increasing joy and unity that is the result of our ongoing sanctification. And so over the next nine weeks, as we consider Paul's words for the Philippians then and for us now, my prayer for us, and I hope your prayer for yourself and for us as a church is that we would experience a deep work of the Spirit in us and through us that would make our church a compelling witness to the watching world of the truth of the life we have found in Jesus. We would ask everyone here to stand and share their story. Our stories would be just as varied and just as unique and just as powerful as the stories of Lydia, and as the story of the demon possessed girl, and as the story of the jailer. The fact that we're gathered here as a church is nothing less than the miracle of Christ saving each of us. Let's pray.